Please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans, the ninth chapter. The book of Romans is a book extremely suited to the legal and logical mind. It's astounding in God's symmetry and order in the way that he has created the world and constituted man and formed his purposes and plans, how in the book of Romans almost every critical question that men ask in response to the statements of God's word are anticipated and answered. The book of Romans knows what the heart of the sinner thinks and feels, and the book of Romans deals with those broad and critical questions that well up in the heart. So we're going to read this passage in Romans 9, which we've read in recent weeks, and then read a short passage at the end of Romans chapter 11, and then continue in dealing with this business of God hardening men in an attempt to answer some questions and relieve some difficulties tonight, if the Lord will. Follow then as I read in Romans 9, beginning with verse 8. Romans 9, verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh that are the children of God. But the children of the promise are reckoned for a seed. For this is a word of promise. According to this season will I come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but Rebekah also, having conceived by one, even by our father Isaac, for the children being not yet born, neither having done anything good or bad, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calls. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, even as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it is not of him that wills, nor of him that runs, but of God that has mercy. For the scripture says unto Pharaoh, for this very purpose did I raise you up, that I might show in you my power, and that my name might be published abroad in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he will, and whom he will, he hardens. Thou wilt say then unto me, why does he still find fault? For who is withstanding his will. No, but, O oh man, 
Who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why did you make me thus? Or has not the potter a right over the clay from the same lump to make one part a vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering vessels of wrath fitted unto destruction and that he might make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he afore prepared unto glory even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles as he says also in Hosea I will call that my people, which was not my people, and her beloved that was not beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you're not my people, there shall they be called sons of the living God. And then Isaiah cries concerning Israel, if the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that shall be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth, finishing it and cutting it short. And as Isaiah has said before, except the Lord of Sabbath, Sabaoth, had left us a seed, we had become as Sodom and had been made like unto Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who followed not after righteousness attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is a faith. But Israel, following after a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled at the stone of stumbling, even as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he that believes on him shall not be put to shame. And then over in chapter 11. Verse 28 and following. One of the most debated passages or sections in the whole Bible. Speaking of Israel and the Gentiles and their relation one to the other in the purpose of God. In verse 28, the apostle says, in concluding this long section of doctrinal concern, as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. For the gifts and the calling of God are not repented of. For as you in time past were disobedient to God, but now have obtained mercy by their disobedience, even so have these also now been disobedient, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now obtain mercy. For God has shut up all unto disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. 
how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past tracing out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and unto him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now I read that last section in chapter 11 just so that as you hear the sermon tonight, your mind may be somewhat disciplined and channeled by your consideration of how the apostle concludes his discussion in worship and utterance of praise to the glory of the God who has worked such a purpose and who functions in such ways that we cannot even search out his understanding or understand what he's doing. Now this morning... We considered God's hardening of men as a demonstration that God in his will, in his purpose, is completely irresistible. And we saw the fact of that hardening through many passages of scripture, including chapter 9 of Romans, which we've just read. We saw some of the reasons for that hardening this morning. Tonight, I want to attempt to settle some questions that naturally arise from such a proposition. There is a bit of uneasiness among some when they hear of a doctrine of a God who does everything the way he wants to do it, and then they look around and see that lots of things that are happening do not look good and are very distressful, very painful, and utterly tragic. They have a hard time believing that God can be given credit for that or that God is behind it or that God would put into the minds of evil men things that are wicked for them to do as a way of accomplishing God's will. There are three questions that most often are asked or most often arise in the minds of people in our time, and I believe in all times. Now, one of the things that I want to do, or one of the reasons I want to do this tonight, is because of what we read in the Confession of Faith. In chapter 3 of our London Baptist Confession, in paragraph 7, having discussed in six paragraphs God's decree, the doctrine of predestination, the wise compilers of these concepts come to say this. The doctrine of this high mystery of predestination is to be handled with special prudence and care. That man attending the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may from the certainty of their effectual vocation or calling, be assured of their eternal election. 
so shall this doctrine afford matter of praise, reverence, and admiration of God, and of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. They're saying that we have to be careful how we preach this doctrine because the goal is for those who sincerely obey the gospel that they be diligent, reverent, and admiring in the presence of God before whom they've been humbled and that they may have constant and certain assurance of their calling and their election. And so knowing that there are questions in the minds of God's people and in the minds of those who are not God's people, we would attempt to handle this thing with prudence and care and to anticipate some of those questions and address them. Among those questions are the following. First, if anything or if everything is God's will, if men who are doing evil are doing it under the influence of divine hardening, then why does God judge them for what they're doing? Why does God find fault if all they're doing is what God has pleased to be choosing to have them do? That was the question that the Apostle Paul anticipated in verse 19 of Romans 9. He said, you will say then to me, why does he still find fault for who is withstanding his will? It's God's will that Esau be as he is. It's God's will that Jacob be as he is. So who's withstood his will? Esau's just doing what God put in his heart to do when God hardened him and hated him. Jacob is just doing what God put in his heart to do when God loved him. So who's withstanding God's will? Therefore, why would God find fault and judge a man who's doing nothing other than what God has purposed in eternity to do? Now, don't stumble at the fact that we've asked that question and don't say, well, now that's... That's not a question that seems to me to be fair to ask. The Apostle Paul, under direct revelation, thought it was a question to be asked. He expected it a question that that question was being asked, and he addressed an answer to it. Another question that's often asked and that grows out of our understanding and our struggle with these things is, why does God show his kindness to sinners, invite them to Christ, say that he desires their repentance while at the same time knowing their end and purposing to pass by them and leave them in their sin, harden them, and damn them. Why does God show his kindness to them, invite them to Christ and say he desires their repentance while at the same time knowing their end and purposing to pass by them and leave them in their sin, harden them, and damn them? Why does he do that? It seems that he's making an insincere offer. There's something to be questioned in God's motives. He seems like a hypocrite. He is saying to sinners, come. But he knows those that aren't coming. And he's the one that according to scripture and the doctrine of predestination, reprobation, has been pleased to pass by some, harden them in their sins, and bring them ultimately to judgment. Doesn't seem fair. What kind of a God is that? That kind of thinking has led man to call this God a monster. That's a quote from some who are in the modern 20th century evangelical church. Well, the third concern that comes up in the minds of many, God's just not just. 
God is not righteous? That's a question that Paul anticipated in verse 14 of chapter 9 of Romans. Is there unrighteousness with God? If he decided the fate and the life of Jacob and Esau before either one had done good or bad, Jacob going to be blessed, and Jacob had never done a good thing. Esau going to be cursed, and Esau had never done a bad thing. If God did that from the womb of a mother, and arbitrarily, it appears, divided up between twins, had the same father, the same mother. You could not argue that they didn't come out of good Israeli stock. They came out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob came, Jacob came out of Abraham and Isaac, but so did Esau. And yet in the promise, only Jacob is numbered along the lineage of redemptive history. God must not be just if that's the way he does things. Now, I'm going to try to establish some principles whereby we may approach these questions. I am not assuming that everyone in this room is bothered by these questions. I'm assuming that some are. Some have mentioned it to me. I'm assuming that some, though, will be encountered by those who are bothered by these questions. And if you are going to bring to bear in your gospel testimony upon others these issues of a God who is absolutely sovereign in everything he does, a God who alone is able to save all kinds of sinners, and if you're going to present that to people, you're going to have to know something as to how to deal with this response when they ask these questions. And if you are secure in your biblical confidence and understanding your position, you'll be less prone to get defensive and to get short with them. You'll be much more gracious, much more patient, and you'll be able to give them the benefit of the doubt as to motive and graciously lead them along until they prove themselves not to be really interested in the truth, if that be the case. Well, some of the principles that I'm going to lay out before you are the following. First of all, the first principle, every hardening and judgment is connected with redemptive purpose. Every hardening and judgment is connected with redemptive purpose. It's important to remember that. The second thing that I hope to show you is that every hardening and judgment is carried out upon sinners who deserve it. Every hardening and judgment is carried out upon sinners who deserve it. And then in the third place, every hardening and judgment is accomplished by God who is not to be questioned in his integrity. Every hardening and judgment is accomplished by God, who is not to be questioned as to his integrity. And then the Lord willing, we'll draw some simple applications from what we hear. Now, I'm well aware there's much more to this subject than we're handling. I'm well aware of that. But brethren, I'm seeking to be sensitive to the realities of our flesh. And there's not time to deal with all of it tonight. Maybe the Lord will allow us to go on in the future. 
But these things, I believe, will help us to get a grasp on this issue from a biblical perspective. In the first place, then, every hardening and judgment is connected with redemptive purpose. Remember what the Lord said regarding Pharaoh. God was going to get honor by destroying Pharaoh. And even as we read, when God in Romans 9 spoke to Pharaoh, the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose did I raise you up, that I might show in you my power, and that my name might be published abroad in all the earth. God wants his name to be published abroad in Exodus chapter 9. God wants to get glory to himself. But what is God doing at the exact same time that he is bringing the sea on top of Pharaoh and his hosts? What is God accomplishing by that act of destroying Pharaoh and getting a great name for himself? Nothing less than the salvation of Israel. It is not merely the destruction of Pharaoh that God is accomplishing. It is the saving of his people. And the destruction of Pharaoh is the means by which he delivers his people from bondage. That's God's intent. To get glory to himself by saving a people in bondage. So that in the future, all the nations of the world will look to Israel and say, That's a work of a great God. Look how he brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Pharaoh and his host become, as it were, sort of a backdrop on the central theme of God's saving purpose and work. Pharaoh is just a, a player in the overall drama of God's great intent of salvation. God hardens Pharaoh and his people, and he judges them in order to save his people. God would not have wasted time in such a mighty act except the people Israel were there dwelling in Goshen were being pressed down hard by an insensitive man who was a taskmaster upon them requiring of them to make bricks but not supplying them straw absolutely unwilling to listen unmerciful and God was for the sake of his dear people in Goshen coming upon Pharaoh to glorify himself. Now, there's no question that God got glory by destroying Pharaoh. But if you remember in the future, when God told Moses, I'm going to destroy these people, Moses' basis for intercession for them was, what then will the other nations say? Because your name is intrinsically linked to their salvation. If you don't get them to the end of your stated purpose, you're going to fail as God and the world will not fear you and glorify you. It is in completing your saving purpose that you, the glory will come you that's due you. Lord, if you're going to smite them, smite me because these are the people that bear the name of Jehovah, the God that delivered them from the house of bondage, from the land of Egypt. And you see in your case, if the Lord loses you, and you don't make it to the end, if he does not perfect that which concerns us, if he does not finish what he began through Christ Jesus until the day of redemption, then his glory goes down the drain. 
because His glory is intrinsically and unbreakably caught up in His accomplishing the goal of saving purpose all the way to the end. Remember when God hardens a heart in the Scripture and judges a man in the Scripture, He is always doing it in connection with a saving purpose for His people. Isaiah, anticipating the gospel, saw the relationship between the establishment of righteousness and the salvation of sinners. Throughout Isaiah, especially in the latter portion, Isaiah speaks of establishing righteousness and salvation as almost interchangeable terms. God's saving his people is another way of saying God establishing righteousness in the earth. And then in the gospel, in Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul, understanding that principle, declares that when God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, at the same time, God's righteousness is revealed from heaven in the gospel. How is God establishing righteousness? Well, in the gospel, he justifies ungodly men by the righteousness of Christ imputed for them, and he separates them from the unrighteous who do not believe in Christ, and he makes them a holy people. And they become marked by zealousness for good works. And he is moving them to an ultimate end of unique living in the kingdom of God where no unrighteous will dwell. The unrighteous will not enter that place where the righteous enter. They will be separated. And like the chaff that is blown away, the wicked will perish and will not stand in the day of judgment. But the righteous will stand in the day of judgment because God in the gospel has established them righteous. The wicked rape the earth. The righteous ultimately will inherit it. Now they get their consolation and persecute the church. But then God will give all of that to the church that she did not possess in her hands here. The wicked, the wicked one in First John is said to be unable to touch a hair of the head of the righteous. We live in Goshen and the plagues cannot come upon us because God has made a distinction between us and Egypt. And so God in establishing righteousness makes this separation. He that touches the Lord's anointed dies. God is jealous for his people. And so he hardens and judges the ungodly and sends them into further judgment, simply bringing about that day when there will be no question as to the justice of God in his saving purpose of glory. When the Lord separates the sheep from the goats, nobody will have any problem knowing what the difference will be. And God is building that and preparing that. That's one of the reasons a church must be careful what kinds of people it allows into its membership. Because we are to be reflecting something of the difference between God's people and the people of the world. God is redeeming a people, and as we saw this morning, a part of that redemptive work is a separation 
So God increases the wickedness of the wicked so as to show how they have no right to be numbered among the righteous. He increases the righteousness of the righteous so at the last day, ultimate separation is made and full redemption is ours. What kind of salvation would it be if when you get to heaven, the ungodly are there? It wouldn't be salvation. It's not salvation according to scriptural definition. God's purpose is that we be conformed to the image of His Son. That we be like Christ. But the way in which He establishes that purpose is by separating us from the wicked. And He makes us different from the wicked. And what do they do? They get mad and they persecute us. And they don't like us because they don't like the reflection and the mirror to their own character. This pause is to get attention. It's an attention-getting pause. A sermon mechanism. And it's only designed for about three of you. I love all of you. The three I'm thinking about, I love especially much right now. The rest of you can be patient just for a minute while we gain the attention of the rest. The ultimate separation of the wicked from the righteous in hell and heaven gets God glory both in the obvious justice that is meeting out to those who have shown they are incorrigible in their sin and to the obvious mercy upon those who deserved a like treatment but didn't get it. God has a saving purpose in mind when he hardens sinners. If you could watch this, I think the second point will help you see this even more. And the second point is this. Every hardening and judgment is carried out upon sinners who deserve it. When you ask the question, is God just? Or why does God find fault with men who apparently are doing merely his will? The question can be partially answered by understanding what kind of people it is that God is hardening and God is judging. And a way to do that is to notice the progress of Pharaoh's destruction. Turn back to Exodus chapter 5. Verses 1 through 5, the progress of Pharaoh's destruction. And we saw clearly this morning God's hardening of his heart in case after case, all the way to the end. But let's look a little closer. Verses 1 through 5 of Exodus chapter 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says Jehovah, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast unto me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should hearken to his voice to let Israel go? I know not the Lord, and moreover I will not let Israel go. And they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Let us go, we pray you, three days' journey into the wilderness, and sacrifice unto the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. There's a 
a keen sense of their duty to worship God appropriately. They feel the weight of their duty. And they beg a Pharaoh to let them go do what they better do or God will come against them. And the king of Egypt said to them, Wherefore do you, Moses and Aaron, loose the people from their works? Get you under your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The first step in Pharaoh's overthrow in the Red Sea was his rejection of the witness of God through his servants. The first step was rejecting the witness of God through his servants. Now, mind you, Moses and Aaron were sinners. Moses had murdered a fellow. Moses had been rather brash and proud and presumptuous. Moses had turned out to be something of a chicken when God called him. He was afraid to go talk to Pharaoh. He used his speech impediment as an excuse. He wanted signs. He wanted God to tell. He tried his best to talk himself out of this. Aaron was no great uh, champion of integrity himself, as seen at the foot of Sinai shortly after the redemptive work, with a golden calf that he said came out of the fire that he himself had fashioned. And yet God sent these two men, a man with a speech problem and a fellow who was going to lead the children of Israel into gross immorality and idolatry shortly after God's salvation. God sent them to Pharaoh. And look what Pharaoh did. He attributed false motives to Moses and Aaron. You fellows aren't here telling me the truth. You're just trying to find an excuse for these people not to work. Pharaoh was eaten up with this work project. And he couldn't let anything get in the way of it. And when the man of God came to declare truth to him, all he could see was his greed. And all he could interpret was, you guys don't mean what you're saying. You are trying to accomplish something else. And so in his refusal to hear the voice of God through his servant, he attributed false motives to them. And then he increased his resistance to the righteous cause Because when they said, let us go sacrifice to God, he said, no way. He put himself in the way of another people's worshiping of God. Would not allow himself to let them do what God commanded them to do. He rejected God's witness through his servants that the people ought to go worship. That's the first step. Then look in the next place. Not only did he reject the witness of God by his servant, but he refused evidence in the testimony of others that this God was true. He refused evidence in the testimony of others. Turn over to Exodus chapter eleven, uh, chapter 8. Verse 19. The lice had come upon Egypt by the raising of Moses' rod. And the magicians who had heretofore been able to do the same thing Moses had done, they, their rods turned to serpents. They had been able to turn the river to blood. They made the frogs appear. They could not do the lice trick. 
And verse 18 says, there were lice upon man and upon beast. Verse 19, then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Testimony of his own trusted magicians to whom he resorted for every answer to every question he ever had. This is the finger of God. And Pharaoh's heart was strong or hardened. And he hearkened not to them as the Lord had spoken. He refused evidence in the testimony of others. Again in chapter 9 verse 20. God is increasing the plagues. And this is on the verge of the plague of hail. And the warning that it was about to come in verse 20. It says, he that feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his cattle flee into the house. And he that regarded not the word of the Lord left his servants and cattle in the field. (coughs) There were those in the household of Pharaoh who believed the witness of God's servants. They had seen enough. They protected themselves. They knew that this was of God. Pharaoh refused the evidence of the truth, both in his magicians and in his servants. People around him whom he trusted believed the truth. He refused to believe it. But in the third place, he also, he not only rejected the witness of God by his servant and refused evidence in the testimony of others, But he ignored the distinctions made between Egypt and Israel. Chapter 9, verse 7. Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not so much as one of the cattle of the Israelites dead. God said he was going to make a distinction. God made a distinction. All the Egyptian cattle died. None of the Israeli cattle died. Doesn't that tell you something, Pharaoh? How did that come to pass? But the heart of Pharaoh was heavy, and he did not let the people go. He ignored the distinctions made between Egypt and Israel. And brethren, again, this is one of the reasons it is so critical that we be different from the rest of the world. What if we weren't different? There would be no distinction available as a witness against those who don't believe the truth. May God deliver us from getting the same plagues that the world gets because our behavior is the same. Do not be shocked and astounded when churches report a host of people falling dead of the plagues that are coming in our day because of practices of ungodly people. The churches that preach that God saves people in their sin will get the fruit of that preaching. Those people will continue in their sins and they will suffer the same consequences as Egypt. There will be no distinction. But those who believe the word of God and fear his warnings and depart from sin and separate themselves from Babylon will not receive of her plagues. And it's not going to be an easy road. And it will be a lonely path. 
and a church that expects to be accepted among the denominational powers and among the news writers is not going to go the path of biblical religion. But Pharaoh saw these distinctions and refused to believe and act upon them. Just as today there are wicked men who clearly see who it is that's getting the plague and refuse to explain it for what it is. Experts in the medical field refuse to speak the truth. Men who are spending millions of government dollars to research the project still refuse to call it what it is. Evidence of a hard heart. But not only did he reject the witness of God by his servant and refuse the evidence and the testimony of others and ignore the distinctions made between Israel and Egypt, but he responded sinfully to divine favor. He responded sinfully to divine favor. The way men get to a hard heart is by a wrong response to God's mercies. There's a doctrine in the Bible that we call common grace. Several passages of scriptures can establish the doctrine for us. Turn with me first to Matthew chapter 5. Common grace a word the theologians have selected to describe God's goodness to all kinds of men in all kinds of places, all the men of the world. All the sons of Noah have the privilege of the rainbow, which tells them that their world will never again be destroyed by water. All the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, Japheth, and all their myriads of descendants, God's common grace. Matthew 5, verse 44 and 45. The Lord Jesus gives us instructions. He says, love your enemies and pray for them that persecute you. Well, that's your duty. It's not an option. Verse 45. Why? That you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God's good to all sorts of men. The evil and the unjust as well as the just and the righteous. Further, in Acts chapter 14, another passage that tells us of the common grace that is Throughout the world. Acts 14, 17. Preaching to a crowd in the Iconium and Lystra and Derby region in which they were about to be worshipped as gods, Paul tries to hold them back from their worship. And in verse 17 of Acts 14, he says this. And yet he left not himself without witness, God, in that he did good and gave you from heaven rains and fruitful seasons, filling your hearts with food and gladness. God, upon idolaters, filling their hearts 
with food and gladness. That's the God of the Bible. Doing good to people who despise Him. Lavishing good things on people who never give Him the time of day. Who never glorify Him. Who are never thankful. He is good and kind even to the unholy and unthankful. And then finally in Romans chapter 2. Verse 4. Now this is a clear text. Regarding God's favor to the ungodly. Romans 2, 4. Or despise you the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. But after your hardness, treasure up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his works. And then he goes on to list those two kinds of man. You see what he's saying? He's saying God is long-suffering and good and kind and patient to you. But don't mistake what he's doing by that. That does not mean he approves of you. It means just the opposite. He is doing it to have a witness to himself in your mind so that you'll say thank you and repent. He's not doing it in response to your righteousness. He's doing it in order to lead you to righteousness. But you despise the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering. And you don't know that his goodness leads you to repentance. Now, that's the doctrine briefly summarized in these three texts of common grace, where God has a benevolent and kind heart to people who hate him and who he knows are unrighteous. His children are to have the same disposition. We're to be like our Father. We're to be kind and gracious to the unholy and the unthankful because God is. If you can get that settled, you'll be liberated when you get kind to somebody who doesn't deserve it, somebody who doesn't appreciate it. When you do for somebody and they don't say thank you, you don't have to be resentful. God does that all the time. And he wants his children to be like him. Isn't that only natural? Children are like their parents. Well, if God's our Father, we best develop the grace of this kindness. But look at how kind God was to Pharaoh. How gracious God was to Pharaoh. First of all, look at the answered prayers for Pharaoh's sake. Back in Exodus chapter 8, verse 15.
Verse 8, Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I'll let your people go that they may sacrifice unto the Lord. Pray for me. Moses and Aaron did so. <clears throat> and verse 13 says, The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the courts, and out of the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But verse 15 says, When Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart and hearkened not to them as the Lord had spoken. Then again, look in verses 31 and 32. <clears throat> Once again, these problems upon Pharaoh. In verse 25, he said to Moses and Aaron, Go, sacrifice to your God. Moses said, it's not good to do so. We'll sacrifice the abomination of the Egyptians to the Lord. Shall we sacrifice that? We need three days' journey in verse 27. And so Pharaoh said in verse 28, I'll let you go that you may sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you shall not go very far. Entreat for me. And Moses said, Behold, behold, I go out from you. I will entreat the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh deal deceitfully anymore in not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Verse 31 says, The Lord did according to the word of Moses. <clears throat> and he removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. There remained not one. And Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pray for me. God answered the prayer and took away the plague from Pharaoh and his servants. And he hardened his heart. And then in verse 27 of chapter 9, again, Hail everywhere but on the children of Israel. In verse 27 of chapter 9, Pharaoh sent, called for Moses and Aaron and said, I've sinned this time. hard heart is capable of some high things. Jehovah is righteous. <clears throat> what a theology. And I and my people are wicked. You can't beat that for confession. That's all true. Who told him that? Entreat the Lord. There's been enough of these mighty thunderings and hail. I'll let you go and you shall stay no longer. So Moses told him that as soon as he was out of the city, he would spread his hands. He would make request. So how good God was. He answered the prayer. Moses went out of the city in verse 33 from Pharaoh and spread abroad his hands to the Lord and the thunders and hail ceased. And the rain was not poured upon the earth. When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunders were ceased, he sinned yet more and hardened his heart, he and his servants. Doesn't it make your heart chill when you think of that verse in Proverbs 29 that says, He that being often reproved hardens his neck shall suddenly be cut off and that without remedy. I wonder if that was written without Pharaoh in the front of the mind of the author. You see the way God does it. He reproves, and we say, I'm sorry, 
and he relents and we sin and he reproves and we say I'm sorry and he relents and we sin over and over somewhere someday God doesn't relent anymore sometime he stops hearing and stops answering and stops rewarding and stops believing the lies of a hard heart again in chapter 10 again Pharaoh calls in verse 16 for Moses and Aaron in haste and said I've sinned against Jehovah your God and against you he even has a horizontal conscience now therefore forgive I pray you my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only and he went out and the Lord turned in verse 19 an exceeding strong west wind blew all the locusts away but in verse 20 the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not let the children of Israel go the hard heart is capable of noble words and of high acts that otherwise would be seen as righteous in chapter 12 verse 31 and 32 he called for Moses and Aaron by night and said, Rise up, get you forth from among my people, both you and the children of Israel. Go serve the Lord as you've said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you've said and be gone. And bless me also. Now he's ready for God's blessing. He's confessed. He's asked for prayer. Now he's ready for even being blessed. I don't think, though, that it would take very intelligent minds to see underlying all of these requests that his goals were not close to the glory of God. His motives apparently are short-sighted, immediate motives for relief from the pressure. And I want to tell you that a sure way to harden your heart is to deal with God in your sins as God convicts you only to the degree of relieving the felt pressure on your conscience if that's all you're after you are already hardening that's already evidence that your goals and desires are far short of righteous goals your heart doesn't even know that you think you're sincere but all you're sincere about is relief from the threat of judgment you have no true desire to please God as a way of life, to conform to his law as a way of life, to love him from the heart and let him have all the glory. You just want whatever it takes to make you comfortable and happy. Don't think that because God periodically, systematically, faithfully, regularly, frequently in your life has come and answered prayers for you, given you this and given you that and spared you from this and corrected that and fixed that and healed that and delivered you from this and answered that, that that has anything necessarily to do with your being righteous. Don't assume that. Pharaoh got good results. Did he not? Pharaoh confessed his wickedness. 
and confess God's righteousness in what he was doing. But apparently he utilized all of those words to manipulate, to get what he wanted. And even to the end, even to the end, having seen all this display of God's power and God's ability to wipe them out and God's judgment even to the loss of his firstborn son, Pharaoh still couldn't change and he ran them down, blocked them up at the Red Sea and would have destroyed these people, the people of God. Answered prayer, the favor of God responded to sinfully. In fact, finally, Pharaoh actually threatened the servant of God when he said to Moses, don't let me see your face again. If you let me see your face again, you're a dead man. Get out of my sight. That perhaps is the last stage of the hardening process. Once a man has threatened the man of God, the messenger of God's grace, once a man has sent an ultimatum to the servant of God and said, you either get straight or don't bother with me, that man's in a dangerous place. Don't any of you ever let the devil fox you into putting the servant of God at the end of your ultimatum. Not in the least and not in the greatest. Because the devil will wrap you up in a hard heart and destroy you if you get to that stage. If you even feel such a thing coming on, you flee to God and run from that. Don't you despise the feet of clay that stand before you? Don't you dare. Don't you compare him with others? Don't you challenge him to meet your specs in his personality and his preaching? Don't you sit quietly challenging his rights to address your conscience? You are headed for disaster with that kind of mentality. That servant can bear your resistance. He's known it before. But you can't bear your resistance. God doesn't take it lightly, my friend. God honors those whom he places in a position of carrying a message from him to a man. And God expects that man to be received. The Lord Jesus took it very seriously when communities wouldn't receive him. He told his followers to shake the dust off their feet in judgment against them. And he came upon them very hardly in their response to him. The Pharaoh had forgotten God's kindness. You see, his history books weren't up to date. He forgot the years of Joseph back when Joseph and God, for Joseph's sake, spared Egypt by giving them a warning ahead of time before the, uh, before the famine. And Egypt was a prosperous nation. Pharaoh forgot that. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't read his history real well. Maybe their educational system had reconstructed history. Maybe this Pharaoh didn't read history books that remembered that it was God, the God of the Jews, who gave a man of the Jews a vision 400 years back and delivered Egypt while the rest of the world starved. 
He also forgot the kindness of God in his own contemporary situation. He didn't heed the warnings of God. And oh, have you ever seen anybody given any more list of clear warnings from God? And the judgments of God were unavailing. It brings to mind the book of Revelation when it says, well, after all the plagues, they would not repent of their sorceries, their idolatries, their fornications. They wouldn't repent. After all that God does, brethren, we need not to be ashamed of telling people why they're in the mess they're in. If the church doesn't know what's going on in the world and the judgment of God that's coming on sin, how in the world do we expect them to see it? And there are some perhaps even among us that are afraid to delineate and to call a spade a spade and say this is God's judgment. We're so scared that we may be wrong. I tell you, you're not going to be wrong if you assume God's wrath is revealed from heaven today in America. You're not going to miss it. You're going to be dreadfully wrong if you're so scared of the world that you won't tell them the truth about what their situation is and how it got there. God's probably not going to write it on the wall, but I don't know how anything could be clearer to a discerning mind than what's going on in America today. And yet they look at God's warnings. They look at his judgments. There's no way to mistake the connection between their behavior and their, and their misery, and yet they harden their hearts and will not repent. I trust that some of you are not going through that same thing in other areas. Or you can see that God's chastening hand and his warnings coming upon you. You know what it's about. I don't need to make a list for you. You know your conscience will tell you. You know what's going on in your life. And you're scared to death every day of what God's going to do next. But you keep on. You keep on. You keep on. You stop long enough to get relief. You run back. You stop long enough, you run back. You promise God, you, bro you break your promise. You ask forgiveness, you get forgiveness. You go back. Don't forget this man. Pharaoh is a great testimony to us. A great warning. He ignored God's warnings. And even when judgments came, they didn't do any good to him. Hard heart. Now that's the process. Now, does that look to you to be a God of capricious and arbitrary and unjust judgment upon men? Is this appear to you to be a man who didn't deserve what God did to him ultimately? From the beginning, he wouldn't listen to the gospel preached. You cannot trace this to an unfair, capricious, arbitrary God. You can't do it. This sinner deserved what this sinner got. All of God's judgments and all of God's hardenings come upon sinners who deserve it. You see, the mercies of God, when they come to an unrepentant man, increase that man's carnal presumption. See, if you're ungodly and unrepentant, the mercies of God work just the opposite in your mind. Turn quickly with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 8. A striking passage in the midst of this book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes 8. Verse 11. What happens in the unrepenting and unrepented heart when God's good and God's patient? <clears throat> and it doesn't appear God's going to punish. 
Brethren, if, if I could and maintain the dignity of the pulpit, I would tell you my life story. I don't believe I should and I don't believe I can. But I can tell you this. This passage is true. It's the way sinning hearts are when God is kind. Verse 11 of Ecclesiastes 8. Because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of man is fully set in them to do evil. Though a sinner do evil a hundred times and prolong his days, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, that fear before him, but it shall not be well with the wicked. Neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he fears not before God. You see what the wicked does when God is kind and patient and merciful? He takes it as a clue that he's in good shape. And he goes all the more. And his heart becomes all the fuller to do evil. The heart of the sons of man is fully set in them to do evil. Now, there are a lot of applications to that. Obviously, when the government doesn't speedily execute judgment on those that are trapped and caught in their sin and their crime, then the criminals get emboldened. Don't tell me there's not a deterrent to capital in capital punishment. The Bible tells me there is. I won't side with those who disagree with the Bible on that issue. I will not do it. I'll not let them win that debate. I'll let them have to tell me they don't agree with the Bible, but don't tell me that, that they know what they're talking about and everybody with any intelligence knows that they're right. But you see, when God is kind and patient with us, we do the same thing. Our hearts get bold. I've heard men in the midst of their sin wake up the next morning and say, See, God didn't do anything to me. Some men may not say it, but some appear to be thinking it the way they continue to act. Another presumptuous response is a guy that says, as one of my friends told me today, talked to a friend the other day, or talked to a friend way back in the old days, and he said, well, if I, I can sin this sin, but I can always repent. If I do this again, I'll just repent again. That kind of presumption forgets two facts. It forgets the nature of sin. As Matthew Henry says, sin indulged knows no bounds. It increases. Sin not only increases, it hardens. It's deceiving. What does Hebrews 2 tell us? Don't let any of you become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You get a hard heart when you think you can sin and be selective and keep sin in control. You already have a hard heart when you think that way. And when you follow through with that, God will crust over your heart so that you'll lose all sensibility to righteousness. He not only, though, forgets the nature of sin when he brags that he can always repent, he forgets the powerlessness of man. In order to repent, my friend, we need grace. And we must not ever presume upon grace. 
if you expect that grace will always be given when you sin, then you have just redefined grace. Grace is not under obligation. If it were, it could not be grace. Grace is free. Grace is given. You can't guarantee that tomorrow there'll be grace aplenty if tonight you give yourself to sin. When you start thinking that way, and the devil is so shrewd, he'll actually quote gospel promises to help you sin. You'll think of the cross and the blood of Jesus and justification by faith, and you'll think of all these great doctrines, and you'll say, see, it's really not, in my case at least, it's just not going to be that bad a thing. I'll give in. You're a foolish person if you do. Don't you dare. Because tomorrow, as we saw this morning, you may not be in a position to even have any intention of repenting. God may not give you the grace to repent. Let me ask you the question. If it's so easy to repent, how come you ain't done it yet? It's like the drunk who says, I can quit any time I please. Prove it. Some of you are still, I can smell it in 42 years of life and 25 years of preaching and 12 and a half years of pastoring the same church. I can smell it. Some of you are tinkering around with deadly sin. And you have yet to be afraid enough of God's historical practice and ways to run from it. You are proud, mister. You think you'll win this fight with God. You must stop thinking that way. Not only, though, when the right, when the unrepentant man responds this way to favor from God, not only does it give him increased carnal presumption, but it increases his punishment. In Matthew 11, the Lord upbraids the cities of, his, of Canaan, and he says to them, it's going to be better in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you because if they had heard and seen what you've heard and seen they would have repented long ago in dust cloth and ashes the more God's favor is given to a people the harsher the judgment will be if they don't turn the more gospel you hear the more warnings you hear the more displays of God's goodness and God's wrath you see the harsher will be the judgment, the hotter will be the flames if you don't repent. He that being often reproved hardens his neck will suddenly be cut off and that without remedy. But there's one final consideration and I'm going to skip the third statement of principle. But one thing I want to settle with your mind you remember when Paul said that God hardens whom he will and has mercy on whom he will? Before you go too far in asking, is that fair? Define for yourself the word mercy again. You see, the hardening is the just expectation of every sinner. The mercy is the exception to the rule. Don't have evil thoughts of God and saying, 
Why would God make a difference between one man and another and harden one and not give him a chance and let another off? That's not the, the picture of the Bible. You see, both men have a right to be hardened because both are sinned. Jacob and Esau were sinners in the womb after their conception. They had not done good and bad, but they were bad. They come out of the womb, and you figure that out pretty quickly. Study both their lives. They come forth speaking lies. They're conceived in iniquity, the Bible says. So there's no injustice with God for them both to stand condemned and God to harden each of them and give them more sin because they chose to sin. Back in the garden, one bite of one fruit made man liable for the wrath of God forever. No man who is a descendant of Adam has a right to expect that God's going to let him off the hook. And as others have said, I'm not so amazed that a loving God would send a man to hell. I'm amazed that a righteous God would save a sinner like me. You see, they're all shut up under sin. So that if God saves any of them, it's mercy. Esau is hardened as Esau deserves to be hardened. Jacob finds mercy as Jacob does not deserve to find mercy. Do you see that? Somebody may ask the question, how do we love a God like this? Because he loved us. You say, well, now, wait a minute. That's not fair. Uh, what about the other guy that he didn't love? Well, first of all, my friend, that's none of your business. Jesus said, what is it to you if that man tarry till I come? You follow me. Peter said, Lord, what about John? Jesus said, that's none of your business. That's not your affair. Secondly, when you ask the question, what about the other guy? Why, why would God save me? But God's not just to save me, but he didn't save That other man is only what you would have been if God hadn't saved you. You're supposed to be there with him. Don't be shocked that he's what he is. That's what you were. You'd still be that. Don't compare yourself and say, no, I'd have never been that bad. Yes, you would have. Oh, yes, you would have. You are that bad if you're thinking that way. You may be worse because you ought to know better. What about that other guy? Well, I respond to you by asking you. I say to you, it's an astonishing question that comes from a forgiven sinner. An astonishing question that comes from a forgiven sinner to say, why didn't God save everybody? My soul, my friend, how can you get out of the wonder of God saving you long enough to worry about what God didn't do? How do you have such an objectivity and coolness about you that you can sit in judgment on God who didn't save another guy? You ought to be so full of wonder, praise, and, con and complete uh, deliverance from all that that you don't even have time to do anything but thank God. It's an astonishing question. I would say this to you. I've been young. I'm getting old. I have never known God's harshness against me in my lifetime. I've never known God to be mean to me. I have no track record to point to God and ask him why. Why me? 
I can't point back to a time when God was harsh to me and gave me what I deserved. I only have 42 years, to, 43 years to go on. That's all, that ought to be enough. I've got a whole Bible. God's merciful. Let us put to rest the question. Is God righteous? Oh, yes, he's righteous. But he's only righteous by means of precious blood trickling down on an old rugged cross. The only way God can let you in and be righteous is merciful. Don't despise that kind of righteousness. Don't demand of God that he give every sinner what he deserves. Don't be offended when God has mercy on some and not on others who deserve to go to hell. Be thankful God didn't let you have what you deserved. Don't waste your time questioning God. Rather, respond by giving the fruit of the lips the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The psalmist said, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will take the cup of salvation. That's how I'll pay God back. I'll take what he gave. And I'll give him the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Well, wow, that's a fairly cheap bargain, is it not? That all you have to do is spend your life giving thanks. And yet some still can't bring themselves to do it. They're still debating with God. Why does God find fault? The reason God finds fault, my friend, is because you've broken his holy law. And you're guilty. So don't blame God for giving people what they've chosen. More of their sins. More of their hatred of him. More of their rebellion against him. More of their irresponsible response to his mercies. More of their incorrigibleness. More of their hardness. God's only doing what God has a right to do and what men deserve done. Thank God. And praise the Lord. Romans 11 concludes a long siege of teaching and doctrine by looking up to God and saying, Oh, how unsearchable. How are the depths of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. I can only say this to you who still have the question. Ecclesiastes 3 says that whatever the Lord does, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God does it, not in order to cause a debate in seminary, but that men should fear before him. Relinquish your struggle with the justice of God and come into his presence with singing. Has he been merciful to you? Has he forgiven you of your sins? Has he made you his own? Has he saved you? Has he delivered you from what would have been a Pharaoh's heart? Has he made you one who was glad to be here tonight? 
and would rather be here than watching the World Series or Disney World when there was a time when it was just the opposite? Has God made you tender toward Jesus and the cross and the gospel and preaching and preachers and Sunday school teachers and Bibles and hymn books? Do those things mean more to you than all the other junk the world has to offer? Has God done all that for you? Then come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with praise. The Lord has plenty of time to debate the issue. We don't have time to debate the issue. The revealed things are God's business, are our responsibility. The hidden things belong to the Lord. Let us leave the hidden things with God. And let us be so caught up in the fact that I have received mercy. That I just bless the name of the Lord. Oh God help us to worship and adore and love the perfections of a God who loved us and delivered us from our sins. I tell you my friends when I get thinking about that nothing else matters anymore. And I'm not ashamed of the simplicity of the gospel. May God give us the grace to bless his holy name to fear before it, to make the sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise, and to be content with the way of a God who saved the likes of us. What else would you want? What else does it take? Let us give him thanks and glory. Please pray with me. Father, I thank you as a pastor for these patient and loving people. I thank you for their tender hearts, their receptivity to your holy word. And I pray that they would be enabled to hear what's been preached tonight and to understand it in the light of the scriptures, to believe it and to love it, and to love you. Lord, give unto us a heart that is glad when we see your ways. Cause us not so much to sit back and wonder about Pharaoh, but cause us to stand amazed in the presence of our great Savior. O oh Lord, may our theme be praise and thanksgiving. May our church be a singing church. May we be a thankful people. How we thank you that you've cared for us and delivered us from the wrath to come. Forgive our negligence and our emptiness. And, O oh Lord, deliver us from the development of a hard heart. O oh God, do what it takes in this place to make our hearts soft and tender. Do not cease to deal with us until we are recognized as a tender-hearted people. Hear our prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.